I heard on Wednesday late that Stephen might not be able to come, and it made sense uh, to uh, plan an alternative, but one of the things that didn't make any sense to do was change the bulletin. Uh, so the bulletin is mostly as uh, Stephen uh, uh, made suggestions with one mistake. Uh, the Corinthians passage was supposed to be two Corinthians, and that's my mistake, not Patty's. I didn't catch it when I proofed it. Sorry. Um, but I will not be using Stephen's uh, text. I might use Stephen's sermon title, What Really Matters. I had uh, instead a sermon title, Peace in Jesus. And my text is very brief. It's taken from the end of what is called the Upper Rim Discourse of Jesus, the final body of exhortation, commands, comfort, rebuke, teaching that Jesus gave in the Upper Room just before he went to Gethsemane, just before he went uh, to the cross. And my text is found in the Pew Bibles on page 903. It's from John 16, 33. As he concludes, Jesus writes, uh, says these things. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, by your Holy Spirit, move my lips, edit my thoughts, edify our hearts, and may Jesus be magnified as we consider the peace he offers to each one of us. In his name we come. Amen. Just over 50 years ago, I finished basic training in the U.S. Army in Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. A final hurdle of getting out of basic training was to low crawl about 200 feet in the mud underneath live bullets screaming over the top of you. Sounds harsh. The U.S. Army was preparing, most of us were draftees. The U.S. Army was preparing us for the battlefields in the rice paddies of Vietnam. They wanted us to get the sense that it was possible to function with live ammunition screaming over your heads. They needed us to know that we didn't have to be paralyzed. We could function. We could act. And so there was that requirement that you low crawl. Low crawling is a peculiar exercise for soldiers. I don't know whether the Navy does it or not. 
I'd have to ask Stan, but I can't anymore. Low crawling is pretending you're a lizard. L low crawling is pretending like, or, or is making sure that nothing gets up that the enemy could see. Harsh, but useful. Preparing the minds of would-be soldiers to survive in the battlefield. With these words from my text that I just read here from Jesus at the end of the Upper Room Discourse, our Lord Jesus is preparing 11 disciples for spiritual warfare. Earlier, he promised to build his church. I will build my church and what? The gates of hell will not prevail against it. A warfare, a military image. The gates of hell would not prevail. That means the church is advancing. The church is on the offense against the domain of the evil one. The kingdom of God is advancing into the house of the strong man. That's what happened in Jesus' ministry as he uh, exercised the demons. He tied up the strong man and he plundered his house. That's what the exorcism of Jesus. That's what every single conversion is. It's entering the a domain of the evil one and claiming the elect for the Lord Jesus Christ, the king. Now shortly after this upper room discourse, these 11 disciples would be commissioned Commissioned as Jesus' agents, commissioned as apostles to go out to the world. And here's the world. Jerusalem, that had just executed Jesus. Judea, Jewish-majority county or province that had rejected Jesus. Samaria, a place of people despised people who were sort of half-breeds, neither Jew nor Gentile, and who hated the Jews and would hate Jesus' representatives because they were Jewish. And then the world, the distant parts of the world. And what is this world to a Jew? It's the place where it has always oppressed the people of God. Egypt, the Philistines, Syria, Nineveh, Babylon, the Persians were nicer. The Greeks were awful, and now it was the Romans' turn, and they weren't going to be nice either. That's where they were sent. Could they survive? Would Jesus be able to build a church with that, with that crop of 11 disciples? one having betrayed his Lord. Well, if you were here in Sunday school this morning, you probably had a chance to hear um, one of the following. Tim Montfort up there, talking about the fact that there's a growing body of Christians 
an adolescent church in China right now, growing up and starting to send their own missionaries elsewhere. Some of you heard from the Druze, and I can't uh, summarize that because I was up with there. Some of you heard from uh, what it's like to minister on a campus today. You know, the 11 disciples probably never heard of China. And I'm almost certain they never heard of Japan. And they couldn't possibly have imagined what it would be like to go onto a modern campus and minister. But the church is alive. What happened? How did this expansion of the church happen? Well, that's where my text comes in. This expansion of the church has happened for two millennia now. Happens because Jesus gives peace. It happens because we have in the gospel of peace the possibility of peace with God and the possibility of peace in our minds and our hearts from God. Both. We have both. Now, um, when we uh, think about the word peace in the Bible, uh, the ironic benediction, uh, the Lord give you his peace, the covenant of peace, uh, which God gave to his people in the Old Testament. The, uh, Zechariah talking about how uh, his son, John the Baptist, would be able to set the people of God towards the ways of peace. And then, of course, Jesus coming and this passage from him in the, uh, John's Gospel, and then in the apostolic word, that, that greeting, grace and peace, becomes standard throughout the churches of the New Testament. When we talk about peace, there's two senses of peace. They're related, but they're distinguished. Um, and the first one I'm going to go to right now, it's what we could call an objective sense of peace. Peace with God a condition out there, a status. God has made peace with us through the work of his son, Jesus. Our sins, your sins are forgiven. Your guilt is covered. You have been judged by the righteous judge of all the earth to be righteous in the obedience of your Savior, Jesus Christ. You have peace with God. That's foundational, but it often slips our attention. We need more than that, and God provides more than that. There's something else. It's peace from God, peace in our hearts, peace in our minds, peace that enables us to function. And I believe that's what Jesus is talking about here in the upper room discourse. I believe that's what uh, Paul talks about in Philippians 4, 7, when Paul says that after you have brought your, uh, uh, your rejoicing before the Lord, after you've brought your, uh, turned your anxieties over to him, after you have come to him with prayer, 
that he then sends you peace. A peace that doesn't make sense, that surpasses your understanding. A peace that enables you to guard your heart, sentry your heart. It's a military image there. You know what a, military, a soldier who's a sentry is doing. He's up alone in the middle of the night when his buddies are sleeping. And he's guarding them and guarding their, uh, their supplies. And this peace from God guards our hearts so that we can do what has been assigned to us. Listen to the words that begin this uh, upper room discourse. Let not your heart be troubled. Sounds kind of existential. Doesn't sound real theological. But that's what we use when we come to times like funerals, when we come to times of deep dismay, of hurt, of confusion. And that's where the disciples were. And Jesus said, it, Jesus cares about their feelings. Let not your hearts be troubled. And then as he goes on in the upper room discourse, he gets to a point in the, it's in chapter 14, verse 27. Jesus says, my peace, or peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, give I it, give I it to you. This peace from God we learn now, is Jesus' peace. Jesus' peace? Had he peace in the upper room to give to his disciples? Wasn't he about to face what the Bible calls the curse of being hung on a tree? Wasn't he about to meet your guilt, my guilt, on that cross? Wasn't he about to go to Gethsemane and face an anguish such as no other son of Adam has ever faced? Wasn't he about to experience that separation from his father that led him to cry out in the only passage we have in the Gospels, my God, without saying my father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken? But he had peace. He had peace to share. He had peace to give to those who would do their stewardship in the assignment that he would give to them. Let me go now to my text. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I see three contrasts here. Peace versus tribulation or trouble. In me, in the world. You may have, you will have. Let's do the first one. Peace versus tribulation. There's peace in the two senses I've already unpacked. Peace with God and peace from God. That 
mind and heart attitude that sees things from the perspective of eternity because God has come into our hearts and shown us that there's more than this life. That peace. But there's also trouble. Now, the interesting thing here is that this, this word, tribulation, can also mean trouble. And it's not just oppression. It's not just persecution because of our belief. It's broader than that. It includes all of that which is, comes to us uh, because we are sinners and because we are in a fallen world. And um, Jesus promised in this world you will have trouble. There's no getting around that. Don't try to get around it. Trouble will show up all over the place. You know, one of the things the pastors do in premarital counseling is warn the couple that uh, their marriage is one of the places where God's going to work on their sanctification. Trouble is inevitable. Jesus had the trouble. The trouble to go to the cross for you, for me. But the trouble can coexist with peace. It did in Jesus. There's passages in the... I, I have this theory that the Lord Jesus mined the scriptures, particularly the, prob, the prophecy of Isaiah, for instructions on his assignment. We know that that's true from the upper room discourse where Jesus said, or, or not from Luke's gospel, not uh, John's upper room discourse, where Jesus said, now the scripture is going to be fulfilled that he was numbered with the transgressors. That's Isaiah 53. And Jesus is applying that to himself as he's going to be put on the cross as a criminal. But within the book of Isaiah, there are other teaching passages that we call the servant songs. Suffering servant songs of Isaiah. And um, we, we find in um, Isaiah 49... A very, one of these songs that I believe Jesus read and said, that's my assignment. And here I read from it. But I said, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and vanity. And when you think about the way the, behavior, the disciples behaved, when you think about the way the, the people rejected him, you can understand why he would have that feeling. I've labored in vain, I've spent my strength for nothing and vanity, yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense is with my God. There's the peace along with the agony. Or just a little bit later, um, another song, uh, uh, servant song in Isaiah 50. The Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Jesus had the peace 
in the midst of the agony of the cross. So that's our first contrast here. The uh, peace versus trouble. And the next one is um, in me versus in the world. Now, later in chapter 17, Jesus is going to say that he's praying for his disciples who are not of the world. But he goes on and says they are in the world. In the world, you will have trouble. That's a prediction. That's, that's a promise. In this world, you will have trouble. We're inevitably in the world. But we can be in Jesus. And in Jesus, we have access to this peace that God grants through him. In Jesus, we are baptized with the real baptism that matters, the spiritual baptism, where the Spirit of God changes our hearts and puts the love of Jesus into our hearts. And then there's the outward baptism, the sign and seal of the inward baptism. In Jesus, these elements the bread and the cup make sense because they are applied. They are applying Jesus directly to us. And in Jesus, we may have peace. The third contrast is you may have. You may have peace. The implication being you may not. Sometimes we lose it. Founder of the church where I was said, you know, often we get filled with the Spirit. Trouble is, we leak. We lose our peace. In Jesus, we can have, we may have the peace. In the trouble, in the, in the world, we will have trouble. So sometimes we have to work at this peace. There's one of my favorite hymns in uh, the hymnal 305. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off your guilty fears. Working on the peace that God grants. Um, the bleeding sacrifice appears. Before the throne, my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. If we're in the scriptures regularly, if we're in worship regularly, if we're seeing the progress of the people of God, if we're rejoicing in the progress of the church beyond our bounds, if we're coming before the, uh, the Lord's table regularly, we see that these things are used to build up our peace. Now, um, I don't have much time left, but I want to mine the upper room discourse and encourage you to go and do the same later today or this week. Mind the upper room discourse to see what is there in this upper room discourse that actually contributes to peace for God's people. That actually would enable those 11 disciples to go out and take the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the outermost parts of the earth. First of all, there's a class of teaching here. A class of... Uh, language, words, in the upper room discourse, where Jesus is rebuking his disciples. He's reproving them. He's predicting their weakness. It started 
at the beginning of the meal. Nobody had arranged for the culturally demanded washing of the feet of the guests at the celebration. And Jesus does it himself, shaming them and embarrassing them. That was a critique of his disciples. It continued with his announcement that one of them, one of the 12, was going to betray him. It continued with the way in which he predicted that the leader of the group was actually going to deny him three times. It continued when Jesus said, you're all going to desert me. I'm going to be left alone. It continued when he said to Philip, Why can you, how can you say, show us the Father? Haven't I been with you three years? Haven't you seen the Father through me? Read that upper room discourse. Wasn't Jesus being pretty blunt with those disciples? So how is this bringing peace? Well, the answer is not hard. It's really pretty simple. He knows you're going to fail. He knows you're going to act foolishly. He knows you're going to sin. And he doesn't let go. He doesn't leave you. He doesn't revoke his choice of you. He continues to woo you. He actually says to you, like he said to the church of Laodicea, the church that was neither hot nor cold, I stand at the door and knock. Open it. I want to come in with you. I want to fellowship with you. I want to sup with you. Words that point out that our Savior, even as he calls us, knows that we're going to fail. And he calls us anyway. There's another class of, uh, of teaching, of instruction, uh, of words here in the upper room discourse that bring peace to the servants of God. And they are ones having to do with the way that he has, is promising uh, that he will... And enable them to be fruitful. I think here primarily of the upper, of the vine and the branch imagery. Abide in me. Apart from you, from me, you can do nothing. And Jesus is saying that I give you the ability to be fruitful. And look at the way in which he has uh, enabled the people of God through the millennia, through the centuries, to be fruitful. One of our missionaries was recently criticizing or wondering about the success of Western missionary efforts. And it's not, a, it's not all happy history if you read books about the way in which the missionary movement has functioned, often in deep need of correction and reproof. But, in spite of that, there's fruit. 
within a church. There are times where there's a need for the Spirit of God to come and to correct and to move people to recognize that if they're going to make progress, it's going to have to be Jesus, the Spirit, giving that progress. Among those things that Jesus speaks about in this upper room discourse that enable the people of God to make progress are his affirmation of his presence. These 11 disciples were, were sad because Jesus has said, I'm going away. They didn't want to lose him. And Jesus said, don't grieve. It's better for you to go away, but I won't leave you as orphans. I'll be present with you. And one of the facts about our holy religion is that our religion isn't just a body of ethical instructions. We actually believe that when Jesus made this promise, when two of three of you are gathered together, there I will be in your midst. We actually believe right now that the Holy Spirit's working here. That he'll work through the table. That he'll work through your fellowship. That he'll work in the college uh, supper upstairs afterwards. That he will work for the good of the people of God to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And connected with this, of course, is our ready access to this ever-present triune God that we can call upon a Father who will hear us Hear our prayers and listen. And our act, the way in which Christians pray with an utter confidence that they've reached the creator of the universe, that's a powerful witness to peoples across this globe that Christianity is real and has something and not a few have turned to Christ because they say, I want that too. Then there's a class of stuff a class of teaching in here that goes to what Jesus says at the very end of my text here. Jesus says, take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus' victory should bring us peace. And how is the victory unpacked? Well, the victory is that he's going to the Father. He's vindicated. He's vindicated by his resurrection. They would see him rise after he rose again. They would see him. And that he would send the Holy Spirit. That uh, holy paraclete. That word that is a problem to translators everywhere of the Bible. What is it? Holy helper. Holy counselor. Holy comforter, holy encourager, what is it? The Holy Spirit that comes and bears witness with us that we are indeed brothers and sisters of the Lord Jesus Christ, children of God, and that we can come. That's the result of Jesus having victory over this world and the cross. And the rest of it is, look at the... Expansion of the 
church. They didn't have a chance to see it the way we see it. This morning, you've had a chance to learn about the expansion of the kingdom of God into a teeny. The showalters didn't tell you what a teeny tribe that was. When the Lord put on their hearts to go and minister to that tribe, what were there, 4,000, 5,000 speakers? They don't even know. Today, in the province of God, it's double that or more. And now there's a group down in another country, a neighboring country, where four pastors have been raised up to go down there. Victory of Jesus. Peace. Jesus says, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, give I unto you. My peace I give to you. And after his resurrection, when the disciples were cowering in that room with the closed door, what are Jesus' first words as he comes in? Peace be with you. Thomas being missing. The next week, same time, same place, Jesus shows up again. Peace be with you. Wallace, peace, the peace of Jesus be with you. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Thank you that you love this world so much. You sent your son. And that your son is the prince of peace. And he brings peace to our hearts. Because we have peace with you, O Father in heaven, with sins forgiven. Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen.